0: doesn't realize it just yet, blind to the sovereignty of our Savior because of their sin and the woeful inability to see past the flesh and the deception of the enemy. What they do not yet realize, we, your people, have seen in your Scriptures and now behold in our experience that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have beheld your victory conquering our sin through your work on Calvary. We have beheld your victory ordering the affairs of our life such that they bring you glory and our good. We've beheld your victory in history when the incarnation brought forth Jesus Christ, born of a woman, the second person of of the Trinity, at the fullness of time to take on flesh, to go to Calvary, to be the once for all sacrifice, fully God, fully man, to rise from the dead, to defeat sin and the grave in this one act and one fell swoop of glorious cosmic overcoming power. This is the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ whom we serve. We declare that He is sovereign, that He is Lord, that He is King of kings. Lord, I pray now that You would equip us through the means of this service today, the songs that give You glory that we've sung, the encouraging testimony of faith one toward another, the prayers of the faithful saints, Lord, who gather confessing their inability and your strength and crying out for your spirit to enable and animate us we pray also through the proclamation of your holy word that you might give us boldness grace and the words to speak the lordship of jesus christ to a nation to a world dying for lack of acknowledging that christ is lord equip us this day we pray through your word and as you are lifted up magnified on the praises and worship of your people, through the proclamation of your word and through the testimony of the saints, would you draw, we pray, the lost unto salvation, repentance and faith in Christ alone. Encourage us, Lord, and equip us, we pray, this day, that we might be bold ambassadors for you, never failing in the day of trial, but only only encouraged all the more as we see the record of your faithfulness through the pages of history, even in our text today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hallelujah. Briefly, this morning in speaking with Jean and Marissa, they gave some testimony to some believers from Canada who were part of that Christianity colloquium recently. And it's probably easy for us to underestimate in the normal circumstances of our own day-to-day affairs how the testimony of faith and the truth of the Bible is increasingly illegal in other portions of the world, including our neighbors north of the border. This morning, as we are praying along these lines and talking about these things, just encourage me not to take for granted the great blessing and privilege of gathering in Jesus Christ's name without fear of being arrested this morning. Nevertheless, immediately I want to follow that by saying, if the cost of gathering today was that we might be arrested, it is still worth it. Because the privilege of gathering to worship Jesus Christ is something that His blood paid for and the blood of the martyrs has also recognized through the ages. Just a perspective point that was helpful for me. I want to pass along to you as we open up the precious scriptures and behold them together today. Do that with me today by turning as you're able to Genesis 45. Let us consider the context of the ordeal of Joseph, the end of his suffering, as it were, in the kind of crescendo of reconciliation. The moment where his ascendancy to rule the throne of Egypt is recognized by his brothers and the restoration of the covenant family is in view. So it's really an incredible moment in the history of Genesis and God's redemptive purposes. So let us behold the word of God today and see what we might learn accordingly. The title of this morning's message is God's Intentions. Joseph confesses the good intentions of God in the sufferings that he endured, and we see these unfolding both by his confession and the events that surround this glorious moment in the text. The aim of this morning's message is to strengthen the faith of the hearer for our own trials, recognizing that, like Joseph, God has purpose and intention through them. With that introduction in your heart, in reverence for the Word of God, would you stand as you're able for the reading of his scriptures today? Let me begin in verse 12 through the end of the chapter in Genesis 45. Here is the word of God. And now, Joseph speaking, your eyes see and the ears of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Then the report was heard in Pharaoh's house. Joseph's brothers have come and pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you'll, you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the rest of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothing. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Says the word of God. You may be seated. Praise the Lord for his word. Genesis 50, Joseph is confessing. It's a great summary statement of the great message of his life and indeed the book of Genesis I would extend. Chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph says this to his brothers who once again doubted the testimony of God's sovereignty in spite of their own sin. Joseph reassures them with these words, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today last week we considered three purpose statements that Joseph gives in Genesis 45 for why he has ascended to the throne he says that God has sent me before you to preserve life secondly to preserve a remnant and thirdly to rule over Egypt the message today and it is an extension of this acknowledgement of God's sovereign purposes in the ordeal of Joseph leading to this point of ascension and restoration on the throne of Egypt. God's good purposes are listed in the context here. You have these three positive statements that Joseph gives and then you have the implications and events that surround them, showing off God's glory in the good intentions he had for that ordeal that Joseph went through in, multitude, in a multitude of ways. Joseph's great-grandfather, Remember, kids, his name was Abraham? What did Abram at the time and Joseph had in common? Well, they both experienced famine. Indeed, the covenant family had been through this before. So where did he seek refuge in Genesis 12? Same place that the covenant family would seek refuge in our text today, Egypt. During times of famine, the covenant family found generations earlier a refuge in this land of plenty. Genesis 12, 10 through 20 records this event. It was another example of the patient grace of God sparing His people from two kinds of enemies. The Lord spares us from these two kinds of enemies even today. What are they? The external enemy. That would be the dangers presented to us by a fallen world. An external enemy, by example, would be famine, hardship, tribulation, calamity, the sword, things of that nature, war, uh, and so forth. What is the second kind of enemy? Well, this is the real bad one. That's the internal kind. The consequences uh, do our sin, or more directly, the sinfulness of our heart. In Genesis 12, the covenant line was protected both from that internal enemy, Abram's sin, and the external enemy, famine, and was miraculously preserved in spite of the ravages of this natural disaster and the foolish and faithless heart of Abram who tried to pass off his wife as his sister. In spite of this, The line of the Messiah continues. It continues for multiple generations, even unto our text today. And in our passage, we see once again, the grace of God is featured in saving Jacob's household from starvation in spite of the vengeful strife of his sons, that would be a sinfulness, that had had torn apart the family 20 plus years ago, and in spite of yet another famine that we see in our text today. In fact, in this case, the providential sovereign hand of God employs the very sin of the brothers and the circumstances surrounding their revenge against Joseph back in the day. The Lord uses these very circumstances in his plan for famine survival, which now coincides with a moving, a touching, an incredible family reunion. This is the power, the majesty, the sovereignty, the glory of our God on display. Truly, only the Lord can engineer such a glorious plan as this, to use the enemy's plans against him and even the sins of wicked men to his advantage. Who can defeat a power like this? No one, not even Satan, not even our own sinful selves. Praise his holy name. Truly, Joseph's confession of divine purpose in trial and sins illustrated in the events of chapter 45 is illustrated in the events of chapter 45 Joseph maintains his confession even unto his father's death, as we just read in chapter 50. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's good intentions, through the instrument or means of suffering, sin, heartache, and famine, are evident immediately in Genesis 45. Though it was a long wait to see this story come together in 22 years, now it's just an explosion of the glory of God in the circumstances as we read them. No sooner is Joseph revealed to his brothers than glorious signs of God's handiwork appear in events and reactions uh, 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 through the instrument of suffering and heartache, and these events and reactions following the reconciliation of the covenant family all testify to the sovereign hand of God. Today we behold evidence of the one who works all things together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. A favorite passage of many, and rightly so, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is gloriously illustrated in the testimony of Joseph and his family. The message of chapter 45 required, however, it's important for us to get this lesson, the message of chapter 45 required the trials of chapters 37 through 44. As we consider this today, may we be moved to worship the Lord for his powerful means of employing all of these things for his glory. And also, may we be moved to have faith as we are called to endure, that God has glorious purposes intended for all his people for all time. Let me give you a heading. Lessons from Joseph's suffering and restoration, or in a word, his ascension to the throne, and this includes the reconciliation of his family had a hard time kind of zeroing in on one word to uh, gather all of of what's going on. So let me just give you my verbose way of saying it. Lessons from Joseph's suffering, restoration, ascension, and reconciliation. God's intentions, we could say, in Joseph's ordeal or Joseph's reconciliation in part, are to model for us the following. So we see directly God's intentions as far as Joseph is concerned to preserve life to uh, be ruler over Egypt and to preserve a remnant. But we see also implicitly in the text that God's intentions extend even beyond that to give us lessons from the situation as we see it here. And I just want to lay out four of these lessons. Hopefully we'll get through them all this morning. Number one, emotional stewardship. Joseph, it strikes me, in the context of his story, was an incredible steward of his own emotions. And I think we see that in our text today. Secondly, societal hospitality. You could say national hospitality. There's a lesson to be learned in the heart of Pharaoh extending, if you will, uh, sanctuary status to Joseph and his family. Number three, sacrificial restitution. Joseph, at the cost of his own suffering, is used instrumentally to restore the covenant family and finally, the value of testimony. It is the message that Joseph is alive that revives his father, Jacob, having uh, assumed he lost his son to death 22 years ago. First of all, emotional stewardship. This is a lesson of Joseph's suffering, restoration, ascension, and the reconciliation moments we see. Part of God's intention, no doubt, is through his testimony, through his story, to model for us stewardship. We've seen that with respect to the foodstuffs of Egypt. Joseph's administration of crops and growth and storage plans and wisdom in navigating the challenge that faced them. Seven years of famine is very obvious in the text. But I submit to you that Joseph was steward of something else as well, his own emotions. If Joseph had not kept his heart accountable to God's will and God's word through this whole time, truly the trauma of what he experienced would not have resulted in the events that we read today. Now, I I emphasize emotions in this passage because, in this passage, because it is a touching, emotional thing. The author, Moses, does not shy away from giving us the personal, felt feelings of the moment, the, the overwhelming affections, the joy, the tears, the crying. Verse 45, 1, when Joseph couldn't, then Joseph could not control himself. That's a statement of what he was feeling, what was welling up inside. Before all those who stood before him, and what did he do? He cried, it says, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. So this was an event whose intimacy was reserved for the covenant family alone. And so the Egyptians who would not understand perhaps what's going on, who had no background or perspective of the family ties and the family tension that has been experienced, they were put out and now the space is reserved for this emotional uh, reunion as Joseph is about to reveal himself to his brothers. Verse 2, he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers respond, They could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Come near to me, please, he says. And they came near. He said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse five, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Verse 12, the context of this emotional reunion continues. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of your brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you, Now tell my father everything, then overwhelmed once again. We see this expressed in tears and hugs in verse 14. He fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. That simple phrase, his brothers talked with him, is in itself powerful. There's a restoration of relationships such that now these brothers can enjoy sweet fellowship the kind of fellowship that godly families are intended to have we can assume that this is the first time perhaps in the life of these brothers where they were able to talk with one another in the sense that they had meaningful heartfelt relationship such that a healthy family walking in light of God's word and will is able to enjoy verse 24 then he sent his brothers away and as they departed he said to them do not quarrel on the way These are truly touching statements, and I submit to you that Joseph is exhibiting the fruit of stewarding his emotions well all these years. He has built up within himself a well of, maybe you could say, gospel passions. Joseph was overcome with emotion, yes, and we, as mere finite creatures, have these moments. We can all relate where our normal constitution, our frame of mind, our common sense, you know, our ordinary way of dealing with things in a reasonable sense is overruled by the circumstances that are too much for us to bear. Stewarding our emotions in the meantime, I suggest will prepare us for these moments which would otherwise overwhelm us negatively. These moments of this glorious reunion and so forth provide a window into Joseph's heart. When he was overwhelmed, what spilled out? Was it animosity? Was it hatred? Was it a sense of vengeance toward his brothers? Was it the resentment built up over all these years and all of the hardship he's experienced because of what they did to him, selling him human trafficking, to be a slave in a foreign land, not his own, and then the circumstances leading to him being framed for attempted rape, thro- rape thrown in prison, etc. No. What takes place In the heart of the moment is an overflow of gospel well of emotions spilling out. And I suggest that here is an example of the byproduct of his meditations, Joseph's study, his prayer, and his relationship with the Lord that he was dutifully about all of those years prior. Think of how this affected his circumstances, not just with his family, trusting God's sovereign promises and God's purposes, and then holding his emotions accountable to these truths allowed him to embrace his brothers with love and joy after all these years in spite of what they did, but think of how it advanced him in other areas as well. If Joseph resented Potiphar, which you would think he had a right to do, the fact that he was a slave and this man represented oppression, would he have ever been entrusted with all of Potiphar's house? No, a begrudging slave is never trusted and with the responsibilities to be lord of the house of a high official of a country. But Joseph recognized that God was in charge, held his emotions and feelings accountable to his purposes, and thus figured, since God has placed me here, I will glorify and honor him to the extent that domain allows to be a testimony to the sovereign almighty. Potiphar it, recognizes it, and pretty soon, a Hebrew slave is running the place. What about in prison? If Joseph had hated the prison guards, they represent tyranny and authority, a false one over me. I did nothing to deserve this situation. I'm a victim of these circumstances. And every time he makes the jailer's life a little bit worse and pushes the limits, resents and spits and cowers and is angry and stews in his own emotions and vengeance and sense. if I ever get out of here, he'll get what's coming to him. When Joseph assumes the throne, no, he doesn't take his animosity and anger out on the jailer, Potiphar or his brothers or otherwise. But instead, again, recognizing that God had placed him there sovereignly, pretty soon is running the place. The same with Pharaoh, a wicked ruler, a pagan, an idiot, a guy who doesn't know how to plan a nation, inasmuch as he worships the Nile, cattle, grain, and a host of false gods. Does Joseph, what's Joseph's attitude towards this man? God has placed me here for a reason. I will testify to the sovereignty of Yahweh, and I will serve the administration of this man as much as God allows. And pretty soon what? He's running the place. It was the stewardship of Joseph's emotions, holding them accountable to the sovereign plan and hand of God and his covenant purposes that ended up placing him in these positions to honor the Lord and serve in incredible ways. This is the emotional stewardship that sometimes goes unnoticed in the text, but really is incredible. This stewardship of Joseph's emotions allowed him to extend to his brothers liberating grace, to be free from the burden of their guilt against him. There's a picture of Christ here. Joseph had taken the suffering and sacrifice of his brother's sin in himself. This is just a picture, just a type, but thus we see in this image what Christ has done. Christ in his own suffering and Calvary extends to us liberating grace because the punishment of our sins against him was taken in his own experience, in his own suffering, in his own ordeal. In fact, in his own torn flesh and shed blood. In a similar way, Joseph extends liberating grace as a picture of a Christ-like heart. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. What does forgiveness look like? Well, oftentimes we will entertain a partial forgiveness, I suppose, when we say, well, I decided not to press charges. There's sort of an external acknowledgement that I'm not going to expend the energy or take the steps to pursue retribution for something that someone has done wrong to me. But Joseph went a step farther than this he extended a liberating grace even to their own heart. He encouraged his brothers not to trouble themselves or trouble each other. Don't quarrel on the way. Don't argue with yourself who bears more responsibility and therefore who should be held accountable for selling Joseph now that he's in a position of power. No, I, the second in command, am extending to you liberating grace. What I expect from you is to realize that sins are atoned for, so to speak, and inasmuch as I am setting you free from from your debt against me, do not trouble yourself and do not trouble others. This is really incredible. For the brothers to internalize this and realize this, ultimately speaking, they would need to realize that just like Joseph absorbed their crimes and absorbed their abuse and thus set them free, so a Messiah would do that one day. This is what an atoning, propitiatory sacrifice is. It is the slaughter and abuse that is deserving of her own sin taken upon an innocent one who never committed a crime. and Therefore, upon this cost, extending, liberating grace. Joseph, inasmuch as he stewarded his emotions and held them accountable to God's purposes, he presented his feelings, if you will, as instruments of righteousness. Without time to turn there, a great cross-reference might be Romans 6:12 through 14. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, Paul later says in Romans 12. And then in Romans 6, he says that basically your human capacity ought to be given over as instruments of righteousness. How can your emotions, your feelings, your sense of relational connection, your uh, peace, your uh, sense of assurance, the things you're angry about, the things that you take joy in, how can they be tools, instruments to worship the Lord? Well, it's when you focus your heart and steward your soul according to God's purposes, and in deep prayer, confession, meditation, and spiritual disciplines, you hold yourself accountable to that truth. One prayer that my parents would pray over me growing up that I remember quite well. Lord, I pray that you would help my son to love what you love and hate what you hate. What a great prayer. We've read of this or examples of this in Psalm 119. Really is the heart of the psalmist, is it not? In 119, 136, he says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people fail to keep your law. Was the lawlessness of a wicked culture that troubled and upset him These were emotions held accountable, stewarded well to that which God hates. And on the converse side, what cheers us, Psalm 119.11, that says, your testimonies are my joy all day long, something to that effect. Thus, he was holding his own soul accountable to love what God loves and hate what he hates. In this way, we present ourselves and even the orientation of our soul, our thoughts, our feelings, our meditations as instruments of righteousness. We tend to process emotions differently, don't we? We tend to think of ourselves as a subject of emo- and emotions as sovereign. I can't help what I feel. I just feel what I feel. Is that really true? Joseph exemplifies how affections and feelings can be stewarded over time. How? Through a firm and abiding faith in the covenant promises and sovereignty of God. Now, I unashamedly hold to reformed theology and the sovereignty of God and salvation and otherwise. And that is an underlying theological presupposition that I assume even in the pulpit. However, I tend to try to, my best to preach expositionally. But I am unashamed of that stance in part because of its ability to provide healing for the soul and to extend liberating grace. In other words, there are certain things in life that you can't will be ill-prepared to suffer if you do not accept and affirm and believe and hold your emotions accountable true the, uh, to the truth that God is sovereign and He has intentions and purpose for every ordeal and hardship we go through. And this is a lesson that Joseph's life preaches encouraging us to make that application, to steward our emotions, to hold them accountable and all of life uh, through faith in His covenant promises and His sovereignty, and thus present ourselves, all of us, spirit, soul, and body, as instruments of righteousness for His sake. Secondly, and this one's a little different, but I didn't want to skip over it because I think it's also profound. God's good intentions are to provide a lesson through Joseph's ordeal of something else. And this is kind of, I just touched on something very personal, and something interrelational. Now let's step back and touch upon something more society-oriented and much more broad. This is the societal hospitality to the people of God that really is staggering. Notice verse 21 through 24, a lesson in Joseph's experience. A nation is blessed when they are a blessing to God and his people. Uh, 16, excuse me. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you not the dregs of what's left over, not the crumbs from the table. You know, not if there's enough left over after we fed the people of our own land, then we'll see what we can do. No, Pharaoh says, I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land, which means its most prosperous portions. The land of Goshen was characterized with this kind of fruitfulness and this became the homeland for four centuries for God's people as a consequence of this pharaoh's decision. And you, Joseph 19, are commanded to say, do this. Then he he gives a whole entourage and provisions for the way, including travel uh, uh, travel accommodations, wagons like, and a plenty of food to get them uh, to Egypt, and then to set them up with the cream of the crop and the best of the land. It's safe to say, and this is a way of putting it, that takes into account our modern terms and applications that Pharaoh provided a sanctuary nation, a sanctuary city, Goshen, to the people of God. This is the heart of a nation by its leader. We don't know if he was a believer, but certainly his heart was softened to at least extend friendship and hospitality to Yahweh, the one true God, and his people, the covenant family, Jacob and sons. A nation is blessed who does this, by the way. If the Pharaoh had not respected Yahweh, the spirit of God, in the anointed one, Joseph, he would not have taken seriously his dreams, called him into his court, and then heeded the advice and counsel of this wise man. But what did Pharaoh do? He said, where else are we going to find a man in whom the spirit of Yahweh, in whom the spirit of God dwells? Let's let him run everything. In extending this favor and these accommodations and this hospitality to God, to the word of God through his servant, And by extension to God's plan and purposes and people, inasmuch as he opened up the glories of the land of Goshen, the provisions of Egypt, the best of the land, well, Egypt was greatly blessed. They became a prosperous nation. They fed the whole world. And no doubt, the reach and influence of Pharaoh, and by extension, all of Egypt, increased just about as far as the camel could travel, right? This is what was going on. As a result of extending sanctuary status to the Lord and to his people. Now contrast this, this it's a modern application, with the trajectory and even the legislative session that recently uh, happened in our own state. Who are we extending sanctuary status to? Is it the sexually confused? Is it the morally perverse? Is this whole trans-affirmation movement? Is it not godly parents? Is it not Christianity? Is it not the teaching of scripture? which unequivocally, in a sound and rightly divided way, says homosexuality is sin? Is it instead this new improved idea of sexual license that embraces all these diverse and perverse minorities, quote unquote? into the fold of what's acceptable and celebrated and considered righteous and worthy of celebration. And even this next month is dedicated to be a sanctuary of culture to those who have thrown off the chains, so to speak, in their mind uh, of God's created order to embrace sexual liberation such that they deny their creator's intention and purpose even for their own bodies, all the way up to taking matters into their own hands in the hand of a surgeon or a drug dealer to prescribe Poison and to cut off various parts that God has made for His purposes? You see, we must repent because we have become a sanctuary, city, state, and nation, if you will, to the ungodly. And this does not bode well for the future of a country. We know this from Exodus 1. There arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And the hospitality towards God and His Word and His people was now not extended. Quite the opposite The lives of the unborn were taken into their hands or the newborns were taken into their hands and thrown into the Nile. Let's become a threat, become more numerous. What happened? The hand of God's judgment came down unsparingly upon this nation in plague after plague. And the firstborns were slaughtered. The crops were destroyed. It's the opposite of what happened under Joseph. Why? because hospitality toward God and godliness was not extended, but quite the opposite. And Egypt became a place of tyranny for the Lord's purposes and his people. In Egypt, there was a time, and I'm sure it was resurrected under that godless Pharaoh, where people worshiped the Nile. We talked about this before. They worshiped grain, they worshiped cattle, and they worshiped Pharaoh. In order for Joseph to ascend the throne, all of those quote-unquote gods must take second place. Grain won't save us. Nope, the dream said as much. The Nile won't save us. Nope, the dream said as much. The Nile won't save you either. The very instrument of life that was worshiped as a god became the instrument or became a picture of death when it flowed with blood under Moses. This was a denigration of the false idolatry of Egypt. And we see this both by repentance, so to speak, in Joseph's time and by judgment during Moses' time. So anyways, you're not gonna worship grain. You're not gonna worship cow. Might as well not worship the Nile. Pharaoh take a second seat. Who is going to hold this nation together in such dire circumstances? The word of God through His appointed servant ascending to the throne. A one-time slave will now rule according to righteousness. The land will be spared, the nations will be blessed, and Egypt will prosper. This is what happens and the consequences when hospitality, if you will, is extended to God and His people. What are we a sanctuary state for? This is a litmus test for the future of what we will incur and deserve, judgment or blessing. A message we should bring beyond this place, stand for, and pray that we would repent according to. Thirdly, sacrificial restitution. I'll go back kind of to the personal, but this has a real messianic implication and overtone as well. I find it powerful as we compare it to Jesus and his own experience. And there's something to do with clothing, what we see resurfacing in the text, and that is a a clue to tie it into references to wardrobes we've seen in prior uh, chapters, especially 37. Notice in verse 21, the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. Note 22, to each and all of them, he gave a change of clothes but to Benjamin, he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. And then to his father, he sent us follows, And we have that entourage of animals, provisions for the journey, food and travel. This is quite the moment. Just to remind you, because clothing is a featured sort of signal, illustration in the text of greater truths, Kids, what happened to Joseph's coat of many colors back in chapter 37? What did his brothers... That's exactly right. Fiona reminds us of 37.3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. He made for him a robe of many colors. He gave this privileged, you know, this uh, gesture, this token of his favoritism for Joseph in the form of this robe. This caused his brothers to resent him, of course. They conspired to kill him. They stripped off his robe. They came to Joseph, verse 23. or When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. Later, they used this in their deceptive, false atonement attempt to cover their sin and to convince their father that he was destroyed. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe. "...and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors back to his father." And then more garment implications. What did, how did Jacob respond? He tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins. So Joseph's robes were desecrated, if you will. They were abused and destroyed. They were used as instruments and tools not of reconciliation, not of equipping. He wasn't honored as a result of God's favor upon him, testified to by that robe, quite the opposite. They were stripped of him. He was mocked. His robes were desecrated. They were torn and used in a deceptive way and sent to their father. What is this message? Well, if you contrast this with Genesis 45, the significance of Joseph giving each of his brothers a change of clothes is quite intense. Each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. Isn't that something? You know, they owed him a great debt for stealing his clothing and desecrating it. So, Clothes for us are more expendable, and they're just kind of a disposable aspect of our everyday lives. Think of the opposite in the times when these words were written. That was, clothing was very important. Instead of holding his brothers, which he might well have done, he had both the authority and the power to do so, uh, accountable to their debt for stealing his clothing. Instead, what does Joseph do? From his royal storehouses, he gives them each a change of clothes. This is sacrificial restitution. When there's an injustice, a restoration, restitution, it must be made right. But what happened here? Joseph absorbed again the abuse of his brothers, and instead of requiring of them to pay their own debt, he instead gives them from his royal storehouses each a change of clothes. He models the opposite of the resentful malice of his brothers. In chapter 37, they stole his coat, defaced it to deceive, and sent him far away from material gain motivated to plunder and destroy, moving their father in turn to tear his own clothing and exchange them for the clothes of mourning sackcloth. On the other hand, by contrast in our text, Joseph outfits them with the change of clothes for the journey unto reconciliation. From the storehouses of his royal throne, he provides for them garments to wear on the way. This is a shocking twist. He clothes them in order that they might go and gather their father and return rather than demand their great debt be paid to him. He absorbs their transgressions and graciously blesses them instead. Can you not hear the Christ-centered overtones coming forth in the dramatic details of this text? In John chapter 19, What do the soldiers do? Let's turn there just to remind ourselves. Jesus also had garments that were abused and defaced and desecrated in his trial and ordeal. In 191, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Clothing was used not to honor and venerate but instead to reject, to mock, and to abuse. It goes further in verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, and what did they do? Just like the brothers in Joseph's case, they ripped them up, divided them into four parts. Each one, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece, top to bottom. They said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be thus. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So Jesus was no stranger to the abuse that was seen uh, in this and even in his clothing and what those actions represented. And just as Joseph absorbed the suffering And absorbed the abuse of his brothers, and instead of requiring for them that they repay their debt, granted to them royal robes. So Jesus does this for us as well. This struck me as I was reading. Last week, we talked, uh, we uh, tied in this idea of preserving a remnant to what the remnant looks like. You know, we are a remnant here today, there's a remnant then, but when we are all reconciled and the glorious spiritual family reunion, what does our number look like in Revelation 7? We have these, you know, this language of 12,000 from every tribe representing a great number that no one could number of all the people of God. One might ask, what are they wearing? Crying out, verse 10, oh, excuse me, verse 11, 9. After this, I looked and behold a great number that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Where did they get this clothing? Verse 13 answers, and one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes? And uh, from where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. He said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of Jesus, absorbing the payment and penalty of our sin that is the key to granting to us, liberating grace, freemen from the obligation to pay back what we owe a sovereign God because of our cosmic treason against him. And instead giving us grace upon grace, new clothing, his righteousness from the storehouses of glory. The king absorbs the penalty of our sin and grants unto us robes that are presentable for a glorious marriage feast, even the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is modeled in type and shadow and picture in Joseph's own experience. And these truths really unfold as the testimony of Christ does as well. We find so much to draw from as we compare the two. Joseph gets a little more than the others There's even disparity pictured here. He receives a greater allotment. But the parable of wages even comes to mind in this. God's blessings, they're not equal, but we can trust his sovereignty as well. Even here is an indictment of our culture. Righteousness and justice is, according to the Marxist modern prevalent worldview, an equal distribution of all opportunity, wealth, and standing, and so forth. No, we can trust a sovereign God. God had elevated Joseph beyond a position that any of his brothers would ever enjoy, but he did so for saving purposes. And when he granted to them forgiveness, he gave his brother more clothes and money than they received. How would, what illustration of wickedness of their hearts would it have demonstrated if they said, we refuse to go back, stomp the foot, this isn't fair. We should get that many shekels. We should get five changes of clothes. What a petulant, short-sighted, rebellious, ungrateful attitude. And when the people, uh, under God, all human beings, act that way, I'm going to register my disgust. I'm going to be an activist for social justice. I'm going to not rest until I see X, Y, and Z, an equal distribution of the wealth. It's time for the rich to pay their fair share. I mean, the extent of the systemic systemic, uh, crime, and uh, covetousness and stealing that we see in our uh, society today. At root is a rebellion against the Lord who distributes his property and his possessions as he wills. Some get more than others, but you can trust from the story of Joseph and the testimony of all scripture that the owner of the field has a right to to disperse his wages as he wills, and he has a sovereign purpose for it. Rather, the heart of the brothers now changed exhibited what is truly a good perspective on the situation. We deserve to be judged and be held accountable for our sin to our brother so long ago. But by the grace of God and by extension his grace, we have not received what we deserve. In fact, we're clothed by robes from his royal storehouses. This is undeserved. It is a blessing for which God is deserving of praise. Anything short of hell is eternal life and reason for us to praise for eternity. Therefore, I trust, Lord, that the, whatever you've given me by way of blessing or hardship, that I deserve hell and therefore it is a blessing. This is the heart I trust of the brothers and we see it testified accordingly in Genesis 45. Final point this morning and final lesson we'll touch upon today. Remember, these are extensions of God's purposes through this event. We're witnessing God's intentions in Joseph's ordeal, in his suffering, in his restoration, in his ascension, and the reconciliation of the covenant family. We've seen there's a lesson in emotional stewardship. There's a lesson in social, if you will, hospitality, sacrificial restitution, and finally, the value of a testimony. In Genesis 45, what is it that finally rouses Jacob out of his despair and depression? They went out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, verse 25, to their father Jacob. They told him, Joseph is alive. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And we know the phrase, it's too good to be true. Jacob would resonate with that as well. He has been stewing in the hardship and loss. And he's never really, in his heart, I think, let go of the sackcloth of mourning. And Jacob was not always a man of excellent, strong faith. And I'm sure he suffered a lot. With the question, why have you taken my favorite son? We see his tendency to cling with desperate white-knuckled fear to Benjamin because of the difficulty that he has suffered in the loss of Joseph. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel, Jacob said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Put yourself in Jacob's shoes. This is no less emotionally, in his experience, a resurrection testimony. His son, for all intents and purposes, has risen from the dead. Not literally so, but in the experience of Jacob, this is a death and resurrection account. Uh, This has happened with other patriarchs as well. Think of Abraham going to sacrifice Isaac. He had resolved himself to kill his son. But what gave him the faith to do so? And a stronger example of faith, perhaps, he knew, uh, Hebrews 11 tells us, that he was offering the Son to the one who had the power to raise the dead. The testimony of resurrection is incredibly powerful. The testimony of the resurrection, so to speak, of Joseph revived the heart and the spirit of Jacob. Thus, that he was able to live to 147, I believe, good years on the knowledge on the testimony of what God had sovereignly accomplished against all odds and all dangers, sparing his son death that he was certain had happened. Think of the day when Jesus died and the despair of the disciples. Their savior, their Messiah, had suffered at the hands of sinners. They were hoping for a conquering hero. And what they got was a debased and humiliated victim of Roman cruelty and power crushed in hands and feet and head and stripes and back and hung on this uh, instrument of cruel torture, the cross of Calvary. Dejected, despairing, and aimless, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus talking about the events and no doubt sharing, commiserating their despair at what they had witnessed. Yet there was a third person walking with them on the way. At first they didn't know who it was. Kids, who was that third person? That journeying with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus, that's right. Eventually he was revealed to them in the breaking of the bread and the wine. And oh, how their spirits revived at the testimony of his resurrection and the church that they started and others with them exists today because the spirit of the disciples of Jesus Christ revived at his resurrection such it gave enough gospel energy to continue to proclaim the gospel of his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension for 2,000 plus years. And there is no shelf life on the reviving power of the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If your own heart has waned in its efficacy, you just need to return to the truth of the scripture. You just need to go back and remind your soul and steward your emotions of what God has done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You just need to crucify your flesh and set aside the cares of life and the short-term trials and difficulties that discourage you and go back for the world or for the uh, heaven's eye view of his purposes for the world and for you and for the kingdom of God and for the power of the gospel going forth. And as you do, that testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will revive you just as it did Jacob then just as it did the disciples on the way to Emmaus, and just as it has animated and revived his church, and yes, saints, we need it now. The church, though, does not suffer without power or influence and authority. We serve a resurrection, resurrected and ascended Christ. We need to remind ourselves and others that he has risen from the dead. Remind the blind sinner that they are responsible for the death of their Messiah, but he has conquered death and the grave, and he is coming again. Therefore, they must bow and repent before him and embrace him while there yet remains today. God, in his grace, extends to us one more day to repent and believe, a glorious mercy that we do not deserve. But let us take advantage to realize the glories of that message for our own souls and to proclaim them to our children and beyond as the Lord grants opportunity, that Jesus Christ might be honored, glorified, and championed as the Joseph to come who fulfilled those type and shadows of old and glorious power. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your majesty, greatness, and glory that we see recorded in the pages of scripture and experienced in our own testimony. I pray that as your word has gone forth, so far as it has been rightly divided, that it would revive our souls and encourage us Teach us to apply this message by stewarding well our emotions in difficult mean times and to look to Christ who rose from the dead, our Savior and Sovereign, that we might serve you, Lord, with consistency, faithfulness, boldness until you return. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.